Welcome to the Disney Parks Podcast with your hosts, Tony Castlenova from DisneyByTheNumbers.com and Parkhopper John from WDWParkhoppers.com. Keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the podcast at all times and get ready for the Disney Parks Podcast. And now, the Disney Parks Podcast infotainment segment. Well, in today's show, we've got a very special guest. Uh, he's a returning guest. He's one of our favorite guests. He's uh, he's an author. Uh, Jeffrey Barnes is best-selling author. He's a Disney motivational speaker. Uh, he's a he's a teacher of higher education. He's administrator, university professor, uh, and he's a leadership and success coach. And he has over thirty-five years of professional speaking experience and nearly twenty years experience leading teams and teaching college courses. Now he believes Disneyland's story teaches us some of life's greatest lessons. And as long as you know its history, know what to look for, and you are willing to connect uh, connect it all to your own story. I highly agree with that. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show, Jeffrey Barnes. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me back on. Oh, no, it's our pleasure. Yeah, definitely a pleasure. Uh, so, Jeff, we like to ask everybody, and you probably told us uh, four years ago, <laughs> but how did your uh, journey with uh, Disney begin? Well, it actually started uh, for me in Florida. My uh, my dad was stationed um, with the Air Force up in the Panhandle, and uh, Walt Disney World had just recently opened. And so we took a family vacation down there August of 1973, 1974. And for me, at you know the age of 9 or 10, uh, stepping onto Main Street the first time, I, I just instantly knew this place was special, this place was different. And from that moment on, uh, it, it didn't matter why we were going to Disney World. It could be another family trip. It could be, you know, something related to school. I, I was always the kid who was most looking forward to it. And then uh, fast forward to the late 80s, and I'm going to grad school in uh, Northern California, make my first trip down to Los Angeles. And, of course, I want to go to Disneyland. Right. And uh, that was in August of 1988. And I actually hated it. Um Part of it was because it, it wasn't what I remembered uh, from Florida as a child. Mm-hmm. Most of it is because we just didn't plan and prepare well. And so we walked into the park at like 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and it was way too hot. It was way too crowded. We got into the first line for the newest, latest, greatest attraction, which then was Star Tours. Oh, wow. And it was it was three hours before we you know, experienced our first Disneyland ride. Mm. And um, by the end of the night, I, I was I was just done. And if, if you had told me, look, you're going to fall in love with this place. You're going to teach a college course on this place. You're going to end up writing best-selling books on this place. I, I would have said you were completely out of your mind. Right. But I was fortunate enough to stay in California long enough to realize 
that for locals, Disneyland means something at sort of a deeper level than I think Disney World does for folks in Florida. Uh, Disney World's always been more of an international park, Disneyland, a locals park. Right. And by becoming a, a, a local, if you will, by living in California long enough, I, I just came to realize this this place is special. And so I got really curious and um, really wanted to learn as much as I could about Walt and his first or original Magic Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And that's when I discovered, um, you know, like almost all of us, Walt wasn't born successful. He actually had more failures than success. Right. And even at the age 53, when he wanted to build his magic kingdom, he didn't just get to speak the words and it magically appear out of an orange robe in Anaheim. Yeah. He faced every obstacle, every difficulty imaginable. And he just kept pushing forward. And that story really, uh, connected with me and helped me to realize that uh, folks who go to Disneyland looking for escape can really flip that and turn it into an example for seeing their own dreams come true. And uh, that's what my college course is about. And that's what both books, uh, The Wisdom of Walt based on Disneyland or Beyond the Wisdom of Walt based on Walt Disney World. That's really what those stories and those books are all about. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So um, let's talk about how we got here, because like we were talking right before we got on the air. It's been four years mm-hmm. since we were all doing a meet and greet at the Polynesian <laughs> Resort. And there you come walking in and we were just hanging out and chatting. And we uh, actually I got my first copy of your book. And I say first, I've had a couple and given them away. <laughs> uh, but I got my that copy that you signed to me, I still have, by the way. I'm not giving that away. Uh, but that was the first time, you know, I got my hands on the copy of the book. And uh, I had already uh, pre-read a good chunk of it and loved it. So since you started the book, can you kind of give everybody a refresher on just the first book? Uh, a little bit of how that came to be and what happened Mm -hmm. four years ago to bring us to what we're talking about today, uh, which will keep that a little bit of a secret. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I, uh, I had this crazy idea of teaching a college course on the history of Disneyland, uh, and, and challenging students, not just to go to the park, because they grew up with it and they love it. But to, again, really use it as that example for seeing their own dreams come true. And, um, you know, pitched the idea, got permission, worked on it, you know, built a curriculum, syllabus, textbooks, guest lecturers, field trips, all of it's laid out. And, I mean, we're, 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 we're following the dream. Give the first class lecture. It was amazing. As much as I loved it, the students loved it even more. And then the very next day, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And the neurosurgeon at Cedars-Sinai wanted to operate immediately and, and told me, best case scenario, I'd be back to work in, in six to eight weeks, you know, minimum. Well, you know, six to eight weeks in a college class schedule means there's no class. 
And um, I, I just told him, no, it's, 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 it's not going to happen. And, and part of that was driven by knowing I was going to have to tell the students, look, when you get busy chasing your goal, when you get busy chasing your dream, you're going to have difficulties. You're going to have obstacles. If it were easy, somebody would have done it already. Right. And if that's really the lesson that I wanted to teach, well, maybe this was a chance for it to not just be a lecture, but actually an example. And I didn't want to go running, you know, at the first obstacle that was thrown in front of me. So we put the surgery off for two and a half months so I could teach my stupid course on an amusement park. <laughs> and it was really a transformative event. Um, you know, it was a very meaningful summer for me, very meaningful summer for the students. We ended up having, uh, you know, the surgery at the end of July. Um, healthy enough to go back to work uh, in in the middle of September. And I, I said to my wife, Nikki, I said, hey, it's great that we got to teach the class. It's great that I'm healthy and, you know, get to go back to work. But if I'm honest, you know, there's there's been a book idea kicking around in my head way longer than the class. Mm. And um, if the brain tumor had been cancerous and, and as a result had, you know, had killed me, my only regret was I never got serious and, and, and figured out how to write the book. Yeah. And Nikki looked at me and she said, um, we don't live life with regrets. And it sounds to me like we need to get busy figuring out how to, how to write this book. And right. so um, we, we started it in November of, of 2014. It um, published July 1st of 2015. It literally had been out four days when I met you guys on the 4th of July at the, at the Polynesian Resort. Oh, wow. And, um, man, our lives have never been the same since because, uh, you know, I thought the hardest thing to do would be, you know, figuring out how to write this thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, little did I know that, you know, it would actually sell. And, uh, you know, the market has been unbelievably kind to us. And, uh, you know, the response that we've gotten from readers, I, I get, uh, you know, two, three, four emails a week from people across the country who love Disney and somehow have managed to find one of the two books. And, um, you know, it, it's the sort of thing where it just it just connects with people. It, it, it resonates with them. You go in the parks and, and you have this experience. It creates this feeling, this emotion. And you're not 100 percent why. And um, I, I, for whatever reason, was just fortunate enough to be able to take some of that emotion and, and actually put it into words that, um, you know, again, resonates with people and, and, and connects with them. So I love hearing from folks who, um, you know, have, have purchased the book, read the book, love the book. And what I didn't know was um, that there would be any market for a second book. But after the first one, you know, took off, you will, you know, then I hear, started hearing from folks, particularly on the East Coast, hey, we love the Wisdom of Walt and, you know, we love Disneyland. May not have ever been there, but the right. fact that it's the original, you know, we, we, we love what Walt wanted to do there. But what about us? What, what about Walt Disney World? on the East Coast. And I was very much um, kind of like Walt at that point, you know, when uh, cities around the country and countries around the world kept calling saying, hey, you got this thing, Disneyland, that's this phenomenal success in Southern California. We want one too. Right. Well, over yeah. and over again, Walt said, no, nope, sorry, there will never be 
another Disneyland. The last thing I wanted to do was write another book. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I kept hearing from folks and people kept asking for it. And, and the commitment for me was, okay, so there's these life lessons. There's these success stories and success strategies that everybody needs to know. They just can learn them through Disney. Um, there, there's got to be more lessons through Disney, and they've got to be told through Walt Disney World, or otherwise we don't have a book. Because I'm not interested in doing another Disney history book. They're already out there. They're great. And I'm not interested in doing another Disney business book because, again, they're out there and they're great. I, I wanted to do something that that told those stories from the parks and connected with the readers in their own stories. And I actually had more fun with the second book if for no other reason. Um, I, I kind of knew more about what I was doing this time. I sort of caught lightning in the bottle, if you will, with the first one. Yeah. I knew what readers really, really liked, uh, which were the souvenir stops and the hand stamp stories. And so you know, we put a little extra time and, and care and effort into those. But I think for me, the most fun was coming up with, okay, what are the important success and leadership and life principles that people need to know that you didn't cover in the first book? And and once we wrote those down, lo and behold, I mean, stories out of Walt Disney World just came to me that matched up with those lessons just perfectly. And, uh, you know, whenever you're doing a creative effort or, you know, trying to write something, when, when, when that kind of thing happens, it just feels again, like, like magic. And, uh, so, um, yeah, the, the, the first book, you know, took 25 years, really took 142 days, but it took 25 years of me putting it off, getting sick, then getting serious. And, uh, from start to finish, once we actually began the writing process, 142 days, the second book actually took about a year and a half, but we didn't have 25 years of reading and researching behind it. And so we would write a little bit and do more reading and research on Walt Disney World and then, you know, write some more. And um, and it came out in October of, of 2017. And interestingly enough, we, um, we find ourselves in Orlando and going to Walt Disney World more now as a result of the second book than even Anaheim even though we live in Southern California. In fact, um, uh, yeah, we, we, we've actually, we were at Disneyland on Sunday, but so far in 2019, we've been to Walt Disney World far more often than we've been to Disneyland. And we're going to be there again, like three times in the next five weeks. Wow. wow. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, that may be more than us when we live here. Uh, yeah, that's going to be a heck of a lot more for me. Uh, so it, what's bringing out this coming out? Or you, you have events that you're – I'm not trying to be nosy. I'm just genuinely curious. No, no, that's fine. So um, I'm doing an event this weekend um, speaking to a CPA super conference. And again, it's uh, you know one of these annual events, and they chose Walt Disney World as their venue. Yeah. And they wanted a Disney magical motivational you know kickoff speaker, right. uh, which is really you know something that I excel at, and and, and the message really connects and resonates um, with with that sort of audience. Particularly, you know, if you're going to be there for workshops and seminars and training and what have you, the story 
and the motivation and the inspiration that drives the wisdom of Walt is really just a great way, you know, to kick off that sort of event and, and, and put you in the right frame of mind. Oh, yeah. And then um, the following week, we're actually uh, going on a podcast cruise. So we're, uh, we're sailing on the, the Disney Dream. Did the fantasy two years ago. Absolutely loved it. And uh, we get to be on the dream this time. And I'll say something about the ships in just a second. Mm. And then um, coming back again for a fundraiser for Give Kids the World in July. And um, that's going to be a fun panel. We're celebrating Disneyland's birthday in Orlando on July 17th. And uh, I'll be moderating the panel with um, Disneyland legends and folks who were hired by Walt and worked with Walt way back in the day. Wow. Yeah. Is that, uh, yeah. uh, I, th- I think is Ron Logan going to be on that panel? Um, I don't know. We were oh. supposed to do an event with him in, I think it was February because they did okay. an event for give kids to the world in January with right. Lee Cockrell. And then I was slated to come back for an event um, in in February, and for whatever reason, that didn't work out. Hmm. And I don't know if they've managed to tag him for the panel or okay. not. I know for sure Tom Navy's going to be on there. Um, uh, Bill Sullivan's going to be on there, and I I don't. Um, I feel like yeah, I'm not a of salt and pepper shakers. Those two, they're always in the same they, place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to. And miss- it, it's sort of fun because you know you write about these guys, you hear about these guys. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're a, a, a Disney fan and you're interested in that history, they're, they're like gods. And now you have an opportunity, you know, to be an event with them and, and interview them and, and, and really draw some of their stories out. Um, you know, just really, really fortunate for the opportunities that the, that the books have brought us. Yeah, we got to see you at an event uh a while ago that yeah. you were uh you were doing a Q&A with Bob Gurr. Yeah. And uh, Oh yeah yeah at at uh, celebration. Yeah. Yeah. And then he blew up the internet. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. A little yeah, bit. the uh, the infamous um, uh, duct tape monorail yeah. comment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, yep. thought, I thought you did a great job because because Bob could be squirrely, man. He's yeah. all over the place. Yeah, and uh, you you held it together pretty well. Yeah. Uh, well, the the audience that night was great, and the people who put the event together, I think, did a fabulous job. Um, you know, hosting and you know working with the venue and what have you. Right. And um, Bob. Bob can be a lot of fun, but mm-hmm. you never really know what direction he's going to go. Nope. But then secondly, how long he's going to go off in that direction. Nope. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's 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 a tough that's a tough seat to be in. Yeah. And I thought you handled it really well. I mean you, you asked uh you asked questions that we all wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you corralled him when you needed to corral him, and you let him go when he needed to go. And, yeah. But but it was funny because you could tell when Bob, I'm going to talk about this, whether you talk about it or brought it up or asked me a question or not. <laughs> I'm just going to get this off yeah. my chest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was an funny. Agenda. Yeah. And that's the funny part. That, yeah. I just love that. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so we get to the wisdom of Walt. <clears throat> got the book out. It's a success. You're you finished now beyond the wisdom of Walt. Mm-hmm. Um, could you and again, I'm going to ask the same question I asked last time. And I don't want people I don't want you to give away everything, obviously, because <laughs> we've only got a few minutes. But could you give away some of the big concept lessons within the book that, that people can get excited about reading? Um, 
first book, second book, both second books. Second book. Yeah, I'm, I really want to focus book. on the second book. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So again, um, you know, the Wisdom of Walt really does focus on Walt and and Disneyland. Um, and and the idea here was I, I wanted the park to be the star. Uh, I didn't want to do a biography, and I didn't want to do a history book, and I, again, I didn't want to do another Disney business book. I, I really wanted to connect the stories in the park with the story that the readers are experiencing. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you know, that really resonated with the readers. And um, I think part of the reason why why the book has been uh, so successful. And so with Beyond the Wisdom Wall, you know, we, we, we strive to do the exact same thing. So, uh, you know, the first chapter uh, is, is titled, you know, Expanding Your Expectations. And the idea there is, um, you know, we sort of have a core uh, set of values and a core set of beliefs, and we, we never really challenge ourselves to go past those. And it's, it's sort of difficult to fathom, but even Walt Disney who I think we would recognize as the so-called king of imagination, mm-hmm. even Walt Disney was limited by his own limited beliefs and own limited thinking from time to time. Uh, you know, at one point he went on record as saying he'd never do anything as good as Snow White and actually toyed with, you know, not making any more fully animated feature films because he believed that he wasn't ever going to like do anything better than Snow White. And again, after the success of Disneyland, when people asked, he was like, nope, there will never be another Disneyland. And of course, today in Orlando, Walt Disney World is 150 times the size of Disneyland. It is uh, our nation's largest single-site employer and easily the most popular vacation destination on the planet. And none of that would have been possible if Walt had not let go of that limiting belief there will never be another Disneyland. And so the challenge is tell that story and then ask the readers, what's holding you back? What is your limiting belief? What do you need to do so that you can expand your expectations and maybe not create an entirely new world like Walt did in Orlando, but at least start changing your world? Wow. (laughs) That's, That's amazing, especially, well, we need that lesson now. Uh, probably more than ever before, but that's, that's, that's amazing. And I, I haven't gotten my copy of this one yet, so I'm looking forward to getting it just for that alone. Mm. So, um, yeah. And, and there's other, um, you know, the most difficult chapter to write, um, and, and I, and I say this from an emotional standpoint, you know, the first chapter is, is the story of going from there'll never be another Disneyland to, uh, exactly what he wanted to do in Florida and acquiring, you know, the 27,440 acres. But then the second chapter is titled learning to let it go. And, and that's when I write about Walt's death uh, for the first time. That was a really hard thing for me. Sure. It it was really, really, really difficult. And of course, you know, the challenge with that from, you know, the story of the parks at Walt Disney world is, when Walt died, for all intents and purposes, the Epcot that he had envisioned died with him. Yep. Right. And, um, you know, I think uh, we've had a hard time letting Walt go. As I say in the books, I think that's part of the reason why we hang on to these rumors that, you know, he was frozen, you know, kind of you know, 
put into uh, you know some sort of you know state, and um, you know, and it's sort of fun to you know have the title of the chapter being "Learning to Let It Go," and then play off of the idea that Walt was frozen. But at the end of the day, no, Walt it was a human being. Walt died. Walt was cremated, which is the exact opposite of being frozen. Right. <laughs> We're just having a hard time letting him go. And there are things in our life that have happened to us that are that are sad, that are difficult, that are tragic, and we're hanging on to them. Right. And we're not ever going to go anywhere until we learn to let them go. And so we've got to let Walt go. We've got to let that original version of Epcot go, move forward, and enjoy what we do have both today and tomorrow. Do, do you think that that might be part of the reason that when he passed away, there was that long period of stagnation within the company? I know this is completely off topic, but it's, you know, I, I only get so many times to talk to you like this. Uh, yeah. Until, no, ab- until Eisner came along and, you know, he and he and Frank started making some wholesale changes and, and moving the company forward. Do you think that that was part of that? That not. Yeah, I, I think there's a. Yeah, I think there's a couple of realities there. First of all, um, the, the, the people who had worked with Walt and and who, who worshipped Walt, adored him, were very much stuck in the, you know, what would Walt do mentality. Yeah. And as long as they had the answer to that question, and they had answers for a long time, as long as they had those answers, they knew how to move forward with things like Florida and Magic Kingdom. And then once the cupboard went bare, there, there wasn't a whole lot to replace it. But then secondly, I, I think the other challenge, um, Roy, bless his heart, I, I tell people all the time, you know, Walt went bankrupt with his first studio, Laughagram Studio in Kansas City, and it was the bankruptcy right. that compelled him to California. And then here in Los Angeles, he joined forces with his older brother, Roy, and they, they formed the Disney Brothers Studio that today is the largest entertainment company in the world. Well, the difference between Laughagram in Kansas City and the Disney Brothers Studio in Burbank, the difference wasn't Walt, the difference was Roy. Mm-hmm. And so Disney as a company never becomes Disney the company if it weren't for Roy. However, the company had always had sort of two sides to it. You you had the Walt artistic creative side and then you had the Roy practical accounting um, you know sort of side and with Walt gone Roy did a lot of great things to include you know insisting that his final dream in Florida be you know brought to fruition to insisting that you know they call it you know Walt Disney World Right. Um, making sure that you know the Magic Kingdom got built farther inland and not right next to the I four like a few folks wanted. Mm-hmm. Once Walt was never was no longer there to argue with them. But the, the challenge is, for for all intents and purposes, the the Roy side of the company took over, mm-hmm. and so there wasn't a lot of vision. There wasn't a lot of imagination, and. Um, you know, Eisner and Wells came in and, you know, you know, again, made those wholesale changes. And, you know, Disney as a, as a, as a company and, you know, the, the parks especially have been, you know, way better as a result of that infusion of, of, of new leadership, particularly during the first 10 years of Eisner's reign. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I think Eisner was a fan of the parks as much as he was a CEO. He really wanted to build Disney experiences that people could enjoy. You know. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, when he when he when he got to Disney, he realized that was the only place they were making money. And, um, you know, Eisner was smart enough to, to, to leverage what they already had that was, in fact, profitable. And, um, and and he wasn't afraid to take risk. He wasn't afraid to, you know, do things new and, and, and do things different. And, you know, he sits there and, 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 and looks at Florida and he's like, you got 27,440 acres. Mm-hmm. And you've only opened two parks, and you've got two hotels, and they're running at 100% capacity. Like, none of that made sense to him. Yeah. And he he, he changed it. And I think, uh, I think the entire experience in Florida is better as a result. I mean, for me, nothing is more indicative of this than, you know, when Epcot was under construction. This is where we get all of the hidden Mickeys. When Epcot was under construction, they were so concerned about their first non-Castle Park and a more adult audience. And, of course, yep. they were going to serve alcoholic beverages. Right. And they, they wanted that brand distinction, that brand separation. And so Mickey and and, and many in the gang were, were never going to be seen in Epcot. And, and that bothered the Imagineers. So they started putting the hidden Mickeys into Epcot because they were afraid that the company had lost sight of what Walt said, and that is we can never forget it all started with a mouse. Right. Now, Eisner comes in and he's like, what do you mean Mickey Mouse isn't allowed at Epcot? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually write about this in, in Beyond the Wisdom Wall because it's a chapter on learning to lead yourself. And um, we, we talk a lot about uh, the history of presidential visits to Disney parks. And Epcot is the location for the only presidential inauguration parade that ever took place outside of Washington, D.C. It is in May of 1985. Uh, It's Ronald Reagan's second inauguration. And in January, when the inauguration was supposed to take place, it was so bitterly cold that they canceled everything and moved the swearing-in ceremony inside the White House. And so the irony, of course, is the president credited with winning the Cold War pretty much misses his second inauguration because of severe cold. (laughs) But Eisner calls up the White House and says, look, if you guys want to, you know, move this to warmer and sunny uh, climate, we'd be happy to host you down here at Walt Disney World. And so Memorial Day weekend in May of 1985, they do just that. And President Reagan lands, uh, you know, behind the American pavilion and out he comes again. And the only presidential inauguration parade to take place outside of Washington, D.C. And that is the first official visit for Mickey Mouse inside of Epcot. And none of that happens without Eisner. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, he was even crazy enough to build uh, the Disney Institute, uh, you know, yeah. which, which was edutainment and your vacation together. Right. And yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it, I I think it was successful for a while, but I think that kind of faded away then. And you know, thank God it became Saratoga Springs. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I mean, Eisner was willing to take some pretty crazy risks and and go out on a limb there. So. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I shudder to think um, I, Disney probably would have been bought off in some sort of corporate raid, some sort of Wall Street talk takeover in the early to mid 1980s mm. and then uh, probably sold off into a million pieces and the company and the and the parks as we know them today would have would have just ceased to exist yeah Wow. Tell us a little bit about, I'm interested in in this uh, course, college course that you offer. Where where can people go and take it, Jeff? And how do they sign up (laughs) if they want to? And what's it about? You know. So um, it's the history of Disneyland. And I teach it at California Baptist University. Uh, It's a summer class and it's limited to 20 students. And, uh, you know, the reason why we teach it in the summer is it's a class with a lot of field trips. And so when, you know, students have their regular, you know, load of 15, 18 mm. units, they, they can't exactly be running off, you know, to, to, to field trips in Southern California, but they've got a little bit more flexibility with a lighter schedule in the summer. Right. And then we cap it at 20 um, because we, we actually go to Disneyland. You can't pass the class without going to Disneyland. And then probably more importantly, we spend a day at Garner Holt Productions in nearby San Bernardino. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, let me talk about both of those. So our, yeah. our Disneyland day, um, I, I take the class and I split it in, in, in two. And so we take 10 students on one day, 10 students on another day. And the reason why I split them is they all want to bring their friends and they all want to bring their family. And I, I don't want to be a, a, a giant tour group, you know, mm. with a flag moving, you know, 60 amoebas through the park. Right. So, you know, by having 10 students and then you allow, you know, friends and family you kind of max out somewhere between, you know, 25 and 30 students. And they see the park and they experience the park in, in, in ways that they've never seen or experienced it before. And I think for, you know, some of us who are older, I mean, I'm going to be 56 in August. Mm-hmm. We just sort of take the Disney park experience that we grew up with to be the same experience that the current generation is getting. And that's simply not true. So for example, um, to date, I have yet to have a student who has been to Disneyland for rope drop. They don't even know what rope drop is. And so, you know, this, I, exactly. (laughs) You you just assume that that's the way we do it. And so that's the way everybody does it. They have no idea that they, they show up at two or three o'clock in the afternoon. But then secondly, um, none of them have ridden a main street vehicle and very few of them have done any of the original classic dark rides in Fantasyland. And so for them, Disneyland is about going in the afternoon or the evening, getting in line for, you know, a big favorite kind of attraction and then having something to eat, buying a t-shirt and heading home. Right. And they obviously love it, but there's so much more involved and, you know, getting them to see that, getting them to experience that, you know, my, my, my dream job is to be a tour guide at Disneyland and the, the class is really giving me the opportunity to do just that. And, you know, getting to experience the park in a way that they've never seen or experienced it before, getting to do that through their eyes is unbelievably rewarding as mm-hmm. a teacher. And then secondly, um, we, we have had a couple of students take the class who've never actually been. So that's really fun. Right. Cause, uh, you know, all of the students who, you know, grown up in Southern 
Southern California, grew up with passes. They've been there, you know, every other week. They, they can't imagine that, you know, there's someone who hasn't been, let alone they're, they're taking the class. So they get excited about that. Right. And then probably my favorite students are our military veterans because um, they take more classes in the summer than your traditional age student. And inevitably there's one or two who were looking to just like check the pop, check the box, get their, you know, history, general education out of the way. And I'm not going to lie. There can be a little bit of a cynical or a jaded attitude to you. And, um, you get them inside the happiest place on earth. You get them on Alice's teacups. You get them, you know, spinning as fast as they can possibly go. They literally transform right before your eyes. Mm. And that's the magic of Disney. That's the magic yep. of the park. It's what Walt wanted when he dreamed of a place where parents and children can have fun together. And I believe that education and learning takes place, takes place best when we're having fun and we're naturally interested and naturally curious. There's not a better classroom in the world than Disneyland. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. I'm going to ask a crazy question. Do you have a preferred park, Disneyland or Disney World? Well, like I said, I grew up in Florida. I grew up going to Magic Kingdom, and I hated Disneyland um, on that first visit. Uh, But today, it it, it easily is our favorite park. And then um, Epcot is is our second favorite Disney park uh we'll uh we'll go to orlando and you know we might not get to magic kingdom every time we might not get to hollywood studios or animal kingdom every time i don't know that we ever go to orlando that we don't get into epcot at least once uh there there's nothing like experiencing spaceship earth right at the front of the park (laughs) and uh we don't have anything like World Showcase um, here in Southern California. And so if if we were to ever move to Orlando, uh, we, we could get, uh, not like this exists, but we could get a, a pass that would let us walk around World Showcase and eat and drink and shop every night. And I think Nikki and I'd be really, really happy. Yeah. I think <laughs> they had that pass. It's uh, Epcot After Four pass. There you go. Yeah. I, we we should pack up and start moving. Yeah, yeah. I I, I for me, Epcot uh, is like two different parks. There are either times that I'm in the front of the park doing all the attraction stuff, and I never really get to the back of the park, or there's the time that I'm in the back of the park eating, dining, walking around, and I never get to the front of the park. It's like two concept, two different parks for me. I you know. Well, that might be because it was originally designed as two different. Park. Yeah, it was. Mm. <laughs> it was. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. I love yeah. it. So. Yeah. Uh, right. I always think I always think of Future World as uh, Tomorrowland on steroids, mm-hmm. and um, you know, World Showcase is there, there's just something about that um, that atmosphere. Like, like I don't I don't have to be going anywhere or doing anything, but I just feel better when when I'm walking through World Showcase. Now, I will say this, and I'm, I was not a huge fan of the Frozen movie. I liked it well enough. Mm. I didn't get what the obsession with it was. Um, but I do think that the transformation from, from Maelstrom in the Norway Pavilion to 
the the frozen ride was really really well done and i was a big fan of maelstrom yeah but um and i, and I write about this in beyond the wisdom wall because there's a chapter on choosing to change and and what i tell the readers is when, when you make the changes necessary to reach your goals and take life and leadership to the next level and enjoy some success you're still going to be you there's only so much you can change and for me the the frozen ride is a really good example of that because disney somehow managed to take what was an already existing attraction and make it a completely new and better experience without really changing out the ride vehicle are are, are the bones of what has existed there since 1988 right yeah right i agree um as we start kind of winding down here, there's one story uh, I would ask that you would tell, uh, and and I've actually I've got a couple of clients that I've I've talked to uh, about their book writing experience and, and challenging them and. You told this story. I can't remember if you told it on the podcast, but you did tell me the story privately. You had a a page number goal to write each day when you're writing the first book, and then it wound up having several <laughs> levels of deeper meaning can you can you kind of run through that story really quick i would love to hear you tell that story one more time yeah so um you know i um i, I i'm always reading either about disney or you know various ways of you know being more successful personal development leadership you name it and there was a book that came out a few years ago by an author named Stephen Geist, who just recently moved to Orlando. I'm actually going to get to meet him this weekend. I'm really excited about this. But he wrote a book called Mini Habits, and he talked about how, you know, we get excited, we get motivated, we get inspired, we're all in. And then after a week or two, the emotion's gone, the motivation's gone, the inspiration's gone. Now what? And he talked about the importance of establishing mini habits that are so small and seemingly insignificant that you can't possibly fail at them. Well, I had been thinking about writing this book for more than 25 years, and I didn't know how to do it. Every time I sat down to do it, it just seemed completely overwhelming. And I took his mini habit idea and made the commitment of no matter what, we're going to write 333 words. I don't, I don't care what's going on. I, I don't care how I'm feeling. We're putting 333 words to paper, no matter what. And that mini habit took what had taken 25 years into a realized dream in just 142 days. Hmm. Well, ironically enough, and, and I mean, some days we wrote more than 333 words. I mean, I think there was a weekend where I managed to plow through like 4,000 words, but there was never a day I didn't at least get 333 words in. And if you think about it, 333 words is nothing. Um, yeah. You know, your, your your rental car contract will have more than 333 words. You, you could do that in, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. Um, well, when the book came back from the printer, lo and behold, it's 333 words. 
Wow. I'm sorry, 333 pages. Right. Hmm. And and then, you know, and the reason why I had picked 33 was 33 has always been Nikki's favorite number. And this was long before she knew that there was a Club 33 at Disneyland. Because you have to realize, until Nikki and I were married and I took her on our honeymoon, she had never been to Disneyland. But I somehow managed to find this woman who has been in love with the number 33 since she was a little girl. Hmm. And, of course, 33 is also the number of miles from where Walt sat on the park bench at Griffith Park in downtown Los Angeles to the address for Disneyland at 1313 Harbor Boulevard. So I took the number 33, made it a mini goal of 333 words a day, and then the very first edition of the book comes back at 333 pages. That's that's magic and, you know, tells you you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Absolutely. I love that story. Yeah. That's such a great story. It's a great it's a great lesson, uh, but it's just a great story. Uh and I've I've shared that story with a couple of people to to challenge them to do, uh, not using the mini habits, but you know, if you do a little bit every day, you can accomplish yep. whatever you want to accomplish. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, you're, you're starting to see this uh, appear uh, in in other uh, books as well. In fact, I'm going to talk to Stephen about this and ask him, Hey, do you ever feel like your idea is getting ripped off? But uh, there's a lot of one percent principles out there. Right. It's the same idea. Right. Um, you know, you don't have to, you know, reach your goal or take things to the next level tomorrow or next week. Just work on being 1% better. And right. 1% adds up really, really quickly. Absolutely. All right. My last question is not super serious, but with all the ice cream you consume, when are you getting a sponsorship? When, when are we going to see uh, Jeffrey well, Barnes brought defense. to you by Hagen dazs uh, <laughs> What you would you would think? I um, it, it's funny. I um, I like ice cream, and I no. eat a lot of ice cream. So so here's the scary part. My my daughter, who is an investigative journalist, she lives in Tampa now. She um, she called me up one night. And she said, "Dad, I, I'm I'm worried." And I'm like, "Well, what's up, sweetheart?" And she's like, "Well, I'm worried about all the ice cream." I'm like, you know I love ice cream. I've always eaten a ton of ice cream. She said, no, I'm worried that you're just eating all of this ice cream because you're trying to get likes on social media. Because, you know, she's a millennium, and she's into all of this stuff, and I'm the old guy, and, you know, trying to keep up with Facebook and Instagram and what have you. And I told her, I said, you know, I really appreciate your care and concern for me, Mm. but you really don't need to worry because I actually don't post on Facebook every time I eat ice cream. Holy cats. And <laughs> Holy cats, she, man. <laughs> exactly. And so she felt better for like half a second. And then she was like, you're eating more? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite so, uh, uh, place at Disney that uh, you go for ice cream? Where, where oh, the Jeff Barnes seal of approval <laughs> for awesome ice cream at Walt Disney World or Disneyland can be found at? So for Disneyland, it's the brand new Salt and Straw 
that yeah. just opened yeah. last year at Downtown Disney. Mm-hmm. Very unique uh, flavors with amazing ingredients. And um, my daughter actually uh, turned me on to Salt and Straw when she was living in Portland, and it's now come to Southern California, and we just we absolutely love it. And for Walt Disney World, I am a huge fan of uh, soft serve. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the soft serve tastes better there. They're like as much as I hate the heat and humidity, there's something about the way that environment mixes with the ice cream and causes it to start to melt a little bit faster. I, I think I, I think the Mickey bars taste better in Florida, and I think the soft serve tastes better in Florida. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Fair wow. enough. Wow. All right, so- and, and I've had. I've had enough in both locations that I, I, I think I can give a, a, a pretty informed opinion there. Yeah. So uh, the last question on the ice cream. So are you a Bob Iger Amp Hills uh, fan? Do you like the Amp Hills ice cream? Ample. Ample Hills? I do. Yeah, I do like Ample Hills. And um, we had some – we were there for a conference in July and – last July. And um, I was with some colleagues and some friends who have never been to Walt Disney World. And uh, – Ample Hills is, is is where we took them. Yeah. Mm. So I heard the reason that we have one here in Florida is uh, on the same block that Bob owned a townhouse in Manhattan was Ample Hills, a New York-based company, and that he used to go there huh. often. And he liked it so much that he made them open up a store. And well, I don't know why Disney. He, I would have thought Disneyland, but I guess there's no place to put it. So he made him open up a store in Disney World instead. I, I don't know if that's completely true. I also yeah. know that he I, sold that place for like $14 million, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know the story behind Ample Hills. Um, I, I just know that I um, that I that I do like it. Yeah. We, just, we just don't get back there often enough. We're, we find ourselves in the parks, and yeah. so... I'm always looking for, you know, ice cream that I can get. It's, it, it, I mean, I'll just tell you, it is almost impossible for me to be in World Showcase and go by the soft serve near the American Pavilion and, and not stop and, and, and get one. And I don't I don't care how much I've eaten. I don't care about how full I am. And ice cream always melts between the cracks, right? And I've, I've always got room for one more soft serve than I've got. Yeah. All right, so tell everybody where they can find you, Jeff, where they can find your books, your website, all that uh, stuff, social media. Sure. So, yeah, so we're located uh, at thewisdomofwalt.com, and uh, you can order uh, personally signed copies of The Wisdom of Walt, Beyond the Wisdom of Walt. You can purchase them in a discount set through the website. Again, uh, thewisdomofwalt.com. Uh, you can also find the books, whether it's hardcover, softcover, uh, Kindle, ebook, or audiobook. All of that is available on Amazon. And I would really encourage your listeners to, to come to the website. Because since uh, July, uh, last year, we started a free Wisdom of Walt blog. It's new content. It's different content than what is in the books. And it's 100% free. So uh, if you want a sample of what any of this is about and you you don't want to have to spend a few bucks to get it, then go to the website, look at the blogs that have already been published, sign up, you'll get the future publications for free. In fact, anybody who signs up 
they're instantly going to get a free PDF of uh, leadership lessons from the happiest place on earth. And that sort of, you know, just immediately seven succinct ideas that can help you with your life, your goals, your dreams, your your vision today. And, um, I'll, I'll, you know, again, all you have to do is sign up for the free blog and you'll, you'll instantly get that, that free PDF. And then, uh, on Facebook, I am Jeff Barnes mm-hmm. and I've got a room, I've got room for a few more friends. <laughs> and then on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Disneyland. Well, there you go. That sounds great. Awesome. Uh, we can't thank so. you enough uh, for coming on Jeff and telling us, uh, all the great stories and, uh, you know, Next time you come down, give us a shout out. We'll uh, you know pop over and say hello to you. Maybe get well, you some ice great. cream. Yeah, uh, always <laughs> love talking to you guys and and supporting what you're doing. And um, looking forward to being back in Orlando this summer and uh, hopefully hooking up. All right, sounds great. That's great. All right. Well, my friends, uh, if we don't see you online, we'll see you in the parks. The Disney Parks Podcast is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. All Disney Parks, attractions, lands, shows, event names, etc. are registered trademarks of the Walt Disney Company. (laughs) 